Alina off Nagy's glove into center field. The Florida Marlins have won the World Series. Spins, throws, he got him! A perfect game for Roy Halladay! 27 up and 27 down! Behind the bag, it gets through Buckner! for the Nationals in the first game in their beautiful new ballpark. Left center field, Grissom on the run. The team of the 90s has its world championship. Hello and welcome to You Gotta Believe, the By The Men In Elise podcast. We're here with your bonus podcast for the week, talking about my favourite Marlins. Uh, we were going to, at first, originally focus on one of the two World Series teams, I think the history of the Marlins is so interesting that it was worth kind of talking about how they built both teams in 97 and 2003 and also kind of how they tore them down so quickly. So we'll, we'll focus more on the tear down after 97. Otherwise, this wee bonus podcast could go on forever. But uh, I'm Jody Jameson. I support the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm Thomas Ross and I support the New York Mets. And as neither of us are fans of the Marlins, uh, and neither of us were baseball fans in the 90s, we had to do some research on how this uh, Florida Marlins team was built. Now, obviously, 93 was uh, the first year of the Marlins. It was also the first year of the Rockies. And what I found quite interesting when I went back to look at that was that I expected the Marlins and the Rockies to have the first uh, two picks of the Rule 4 draft. But they didn't, actually. They were kind of picking towards the end of the round because they had the expansion draft. And, yeah, like the Marlins expansion draft was kind of interesting because you go through it and there's a few names that kind of jump out. Like Trevor Hoffman's obviously the one that really jumped out at you. Even though I don't think Hoffman ever pitched for the Marlins, I'm pretty sure they flipped him um, very, very quickly. Uh, they also brought in Jeff Conine, who was a big part of their team. Carl Everett, who was a good player. Dave Weathers, who wasn't a bad player as well. Uh, like I say, they flipped Hoffman quite quickly um, and picked up Gary Sheffield. So even in their first season of existence, they had a guy who was already an all-star and you know a guy that everybody knew his pedigree. And Gary Sheffield quickly came in and was a massive part of the, the Marlins, uh, really trying to establish themselves as a good Major League Baseball team. Um, they, they, their draft, when you look at it, was kind of... Just in overall, their uh, amateur draft was kind of interesting at times. Uh, you would look at guys that they picked early that really didn't have an impact, but their first ever uh, Rule 4 draft pick was Charles Johnson, who was their catcher for a good few years um, and was a massive, massive, massive part of the 97 team, one of, one of the better hitters on that team. Uh, so, yeah, even like when they were picking towards the end of the first round, which I think was the latest they picked, um, at any point before they won the World Series, they probably made their best draft pick of the first five years when they picked up Charles Johnson in the first round. Um, but yeah, building up towards 97, they were a team who were kind of always in the basement. But I think it's easy to assume that like the Marlins in their first World Series, they nurtured talent, they brought through talent, and then were able to um, you know, get that talent all together at once. But if you actually look at the history of what they did, a lot of it was free agent pickups or you know trading for guys who were already somewhat established. I mean, if you look at if you look at like the regular lineup, 
they had Charles Johnson at catcher, Jeff Conine first base. The second base was split between Luis Castillo and uh, Craig Council. Your your favourite player, Bobby Bonilla, mostly played third base. Edgar Renteria at shortstop. Moises Alou, who played left field. Devin White at centre field. Gary Sheffield at right field. So um, in that uh, point, like before the 97 season, they traded for Cliff Floyd. They traded for Darren Dalton. They traded for uh, Craig Council mid-season. And they signed Alou and Bobby Bonilla as free agents. So that was a team that was going for it. Um, so, like, th- like it wasn't a team that was saying World Series or bust by any means, but it was a team who were confident that they could go out and bring in these guys and then make a make a real impact. So, yeah, some of them they drafted, but a lot of the core of that team was uh, brought in in free agency and free agents that would have been coveted by the rest of the league as well. So, it is funny when you think about the way the Marlins have been run for so long. You just kind of assume it was a case of you know, bringing through young guys who all kind of mesh together at once. But, yeah, there was a few of them, but it really wasn't the case. So, Kevin Brown, Alex Fernandez, Levon Hernandez, Al Light are tended to be the top of their rotation. They they didn't win the division because they've never won the division, despite the fact they've won two World Series. But, yeah, um, Thomas, 97 postseason, obviously the Marlins' first postseason in their fifth season of existence. Yeah, it was uh, they beat the Giants. Uh, they swept them, I think, uh, three and nothing, and then they played against the mighty Braves, the uh, the or the team of the nineties. If for anyone who's uh, heard that memorable line um, from when they won the World Series, but yeah, they, uh, I mean, they just, I think it was almost taken for granted, you know, that the Braves were going to win it, and it was, and yet, you know, the Braves they uh, they they lost four two and. And it, all four games that Marlins won uh, were against the famed trio. You know, they beat Maddox twice, Tom Glavin once, and John Smoltz once. Um, it, it was, um, and then all, but also where uh, Game Five also has, um, I think by some magazine, I think was was voted one of the worst core games in baseball history. Um, was this the one where Levon Hernandez was getting like pitches a foot outside to left-handed hitters? That's correct. Yeah, he uh, he caged uh, fifteen, which was a day after because Mike Messina only the day before had um, struck out fifteen for the Orioles. So it was um, so yeah, it was a complete game free header, and it was um, and they won that. And they obviously won Game Six, and it was. Um, so yeah, it was that was would have been a huge shock imagine at the time. So obviously the Marlins had a lot of talent. I mean the talent that you've already mentioned and it was but you know, that was a very still a very strong Braves team. I mean, yeah, they probably weren't as good as maybe they were when around nineteen ninety five, you know, when I think ninety four ninety three to ninety five Maddox especially was probably at his peak. I mean the Braves, I mean we'll touch on it more when with the Braves when we do them, but it's um that rotation was something ridiculous really and it should have won more than one world series pretty much but it was uh yeah great result for the marlins they go on to win the obviously with winning the series they win the pennants which is the first pennant for a wild card team admittedly i think it was what only the third year third fourth year of the wild card and um uh so yeah and then they go in to face cleveland who were you know a 
still, I mean, it was a couple of years after they lost to the Braves, a really, really strong team, especially very, very good offensively. And yet it was a, it was a series that was a, obviously the coldness of Ohio and the, the, the stunning climbs of Florida. You know, so it was um, a study in extremes, really. And it, it kind of like summed it up by the fact that no team won successive games in that series. Um, so it was, um, yeah, and also game four um, was the, on record, is the coldest World Series game ever at <laughs> 3.3 degrees Celsius. But as the weather, as the game was going on, there were some weather outlets that had the wind chill at minus 7.8. You know, so yeah, so it was, um, and also game six also had the highest single game attendance in a World Series game since 1959. So it was, um, it was a because of, it was at, because of the fact it was at, um, whatever it was called at the time, Joe Robbie yeah, Stadium, pro player, whatever, or something. whatever it was. Oh, it was pro, well, pro player stadium then. It's had about 20 different names, but because it's the big, it's the Miami Dolphins, uh. American football stadium. Yeah. It's enormous. Yeah. And then um, they, uh, they were 2-0 down, I think, in, in game seven for quite a while. And then, as you say, my every Mets fan's favorite um, man, Bobby Vernier, um, he got a solo shot in the seventh. Um, and then I think they got the runners at the corners, or at least I think they got runners at the corners, one out. And then the current um, uh, Brewers manager, of course, Craig Council. And if anyone ever saw him do at-bats, I never understood how he ever... He must have had a quick snap of his wrists because he looked to me like he had the biggest loopy swing I've ever seen. It was just he, from his batting stance. It was like he, to me, right, with his batting stance, he had to start, to, in my mind, he had to start swinging before the ball left the pitcher's hand. Yeah, it did look like that because it just, I mean, I've seen him more like uh, when he was in Arizona, like more at-bats anyway. But he's... And it, it actually got worse in Arizona, the, the, the stance, because the bat was pretty much pointing at the pitcher way up in the air. It was so weird. Yeah, and then he just, uh, I think he flew out to right and it was easily deep enough to tie the game. Um, and then uh, I think he was in the 11th, I think, and then... Um, that I think it was, again, I think it's actually on our intro, isn't it? I think it was a poked liner up the middle that the the, uh, the pitcher couldn't quite get to, and it was got into the outfield, and Council scored the winning run. Yeah, Edgar uh, Renteria with a walk-off single. Yeah, Renteria, that's it, yeah. And, Who uh, yeah, the bottom of the 11. Yeah, and then they win the World Series. I mean, is it still the... Is it the last um, World Series to actually end on a... Walk off, or have I got that wrong? Uh, probably. I can't remember another one since, to oh, be oh, honest. Oh, no, Luis Gonzalez. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's pretty embarrassing because then we just talked about Craig Counselor, who was actually on base in the game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he was on base in that game because he got plunked, yeah. didn't he? he yeah, he was because I said that's why they didn't um, uh, deliberately walk Council because they were going to get to Luis Gonzalez, obviously, because he ran a Something like sixty home runs that year. And I yeah, think so, they plunked yeah. by mistake, didn't they? Oh yeah, he got well in well into I know but that was Rivera, wasn't it? He liked going inside to left handers, didn't he? That was his sort yeah. of thing. But it was, yeah, I mean but to be honest, I mean the uh, the dust barely settled on um 
than winning the World Series because I think they traded Moises Alou like not even a week after, like days after. And, um, you know, he's traded to the Astros, I think. And then, it, as you may go on to now, they, you know, just went on a complete fire sale. It was bizarre. So, like, they, yeah, because they, they traded Moises Alou. And then within two months, they traded away Devin White and Kevin Brown. Granted, they got Derek Lee back for Kevin Brown as part of the deal, and Derek Lee became a pretty important part of the the Marlins over the next few years, and he was still there in 2003. But the the deal that always gets me, right, and this was, I think, in May, the next season in 98, they picked up Mike Piazza from the Dodgers, and they traded away so much to get him. They traded away Bobby Bonilla, Jim Eisenreich, Charles Johnson, and Gary Sheffield. And then eight days later, they flipped uh, Piazza to the Mets and really didn't get a lot back from the Mets. They got Preston Wilson, who gave them a few decent seasons, and really nothing else. And I just found that so bizarre that, like, they traded away... Like, it's not like... I I imagine if you traded away Bonilla and Johnson and Sheffield in different deals, you would have got, on paper... And I know you know you never know how prospects are going to pan out, but on paper you'd have got more back um, than Mike Piazza himself. So to then flip Piazza a week later to get not a lot back was just bizarre. And obviously then, like the the one thing that stuck out to me, like when I looked back at the '98 season, was that they traded away both Johnson and Piazza, who would have given them great production behind the plate. And instead, their pretty much everyday catcher was Greg Zahn, who batted one eight for the season. So you know, like there, there's 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 you know building for the future, and then there's just sabotage. And that that whole thing around Mike Piazza felt like complete sabotage to me. Now I know like Piazza was there was the whole thing about Piazza being traded from the Dodgers, and when he got traded to the Marlins, uh, by the sounds of it, no one thought it was going to last. You know, but just the way it happened and the way the Marlins almost deliberately ripped themselves off just strikes strikes me struck me as self sabotage when you look back on it. So as much as they made some puzzling moves in uh, the '97 off season, right after the World Series, that one to me was the worst. So like that was pretty much them torn down. Uh, the '99 they traded Council for a player to be named later. I think the player to be named later never played in the majors. And despite the fact that, like, in 2003, there was more guys that they either traded for young or brought through themselves, they did make one uh, trade that I just felt like highlighting. Um, They traded away in 2000 uh, Johan Santana to the Twins for Jared Camp. Jared Camp never made the majors, and Johan Santana was a pitcher who was, like, before he got injured, potentially a borderline Hall of Famer. Uh, and it was just like a, a one-for-one trade that it was like, yeah, despite the fact they've always had a good eye for prospects and they brought through some really good prospects, that deal just jumped out to me when I was looking at their transactions being like, Jesus Christ, I'd never even heard of Jared Camp. So then I looked him up and he never made the major. But they, uh, in the build-up, 1999 was actually a really, really key year for them because they, um, they drafted Josh Beckett and they signed Miguel Cabrera as an international uh, amateur free agent. They traded two guys to the Yankees who never really had any impact in the majors. One of them was only up for a fortnight. One was up for part of a season. But they got back Mike Lowell, who was like a really, really, really impressive third baseman. 
And uh, they dealt Matt Mantai, um, who was like a relief pitcher for them. And to be honest, only a reasonably good relief pitcher for them. And they got back three guys. They got two Nunezes. One was Abraham Nunez, who which Phillies fans might remember. But uh, they picked up Brad Penny in that deal as well. And just in that 99 season, they kind of set the groundwork for what was going to happen in 2003. Uh, in the years before, they, um, 2002, they traded with the Cubs for Dontrell Willis. Dontrell Willis was one of the most interesting guys going because he was a guy who um, was like a really, really good pitcher at times, an unbelievably great hitting pitcher, but a guy who always struggled with control. But when Willis was good, he was incredible on the mound. But when he was bad, he was like, it's it, it's like the Rick Ankiel story, to be honest. He would walk the ballpark, he'd throw wild pitches, and yeah. Um, but funnily enough, in 2003, like, they sort of half went for it again. They obviously had put together, like, the, the guts of a good roster. And they uh, sent three prospects to t- take Mark Redman into the rotation. And they also signed Pudge, Ivan Rodriguez, uh, to be a free agent behind the dish. And I don't think that they went for it as much as they did in 1997, because 1997, when you look back and it, it looks like a team who thought, if we make two or three moves, we can win it all. Whereas in 2003, it looks to me like, you know what, Pudge is there, let's go and sign him. Um, Mark Redman, we can get him, let's go and sign him. We're not going to win the World Series, but we've got a good team here that could set us up for a few years. And I mean, even at the start of uh, the 2003 season, it really, really wasn't going that well for the Marlins. They, I think, they fired their manager in like May or June. Uh, yeah, they uh, six thirty-eight games. Yeah, yeah. They uh, Jeff Torborg. He was uh, they were sixteen and twenty-two after thirty-eight games, and yeah, he they fired him, brought in Jack McKeown, and they went seventy-five and forty-nine for the rest of the season, which is good enough for the wild 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 card spot for the National League and. It was, uh, and you know, much like '97, they ended up facing the Giants in the division series. Um, they won three-one, uh, but obviously, in 2003, it's famous for two quite incredible um, late-inning uh, games in in both championship series. Obviously, everyone knows what happened with Pedro Martinez in Game Seven at Yankee Stadium, but and then again, everyone knows what happened in Game Six. Um, uh, in the cha- National League Championship Series, and it's, I think the the Cubs were like, I think it was like two or three one up in the series as well. So it was just, um, I think that is right. Yeah, they were three one up, and then they were three nil down in the eighth. Mark Pryor had retired it eight in a row, and then you know, you know, pop fly one out, and you think, oh yeah, the the Cubs are only five outs away from their first pennant in. Uh, goodness knows how long, and probably what seventy years, something like that. Uh, and the curse of the Billy Goat was going to end, and everything was all looking so rosy. And then um, one Pierre doubled, who I think he actually went on to to play for the Cubs, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't even remember, to be honest. Yeah, I might have got that wrong. Sorry, uh, but then obviously the the Bartman incident happened. The uh, uh, Cubs obviously claimed to find the interference, but the umpire said it was out of play and it was up for grabs. Uh, Moises Alou said around the time that he um, 
he wouldn't have caught it, but then he said years later he possibly he reckons he only said that to make Bartman feel better. <laughs> and then there was a walk wild pitch, so you had first and third of one out. And then what people sort of um uh sort of forget is that everyone that if um uh Alex Gonzalez makes an easy double play and then the yes. innings open and it was but that's the thing, he actually led all National League shortstops and fielding percentage that year as well. So that's the, um, you know, no one remembers that that statistic. Everyone really remembers, obviously, um, well, I guess not many people do remember that uh, fly, uh, double play ball because um, everyone really remembers Bartman. And, you know, and you know, one of the worst, most horror, horrifying innings in Cubs history. You know, they, they score eight. They're obviously not going to get that back. Um, and, you know, and Marlins, they win uh, game seven uh, to go and face the Yanks. And they would have, the Yankees were sort of favorites again, especially after that incredible game, incredible win against the uh, against the Red Sox. Um, Aaron Boone. The Yankees had a- Aaron. Aaron Boone, yeah. Aaron Effin Boone, as Red Sox fans came to call him. I think they're probably still doing now, his manager. Um, but yeah, they said and the Yankees. I think the Marlins won game one, but um, the Yanks came back uh, uh, to lead two one after three. And then when you're two one down after three in the World Series, you got to think, got to win game four because you know some teams come from three one down in the World Series, but it's not. It doesn't happen a lot. Uh, the Cubs did it obviously, I think, against the Indians, but it, it it's a very rare occasion, really. Not super rare, but you know it. It's best not to go three-one down anyway, and then and then you just sort of think because Yankees did what that Yankees team did, and you know in the ninth there was a uh, the Marlins led two-nil early on uh, thanks to a two-run home by a young sprightly Miguel Cabrera, but then into the ninth it goes, and then Ruben Sierra it's a two-run triple goes to extras, and and then the Yankees get load of bases in the eleventh. Um, one out, and Aaron Boone um, uh, didn't deliver this time. He struck out, and then and then there was a pop out, and then uh, and then I can't remember who who Alex was. There was someone who Alex, Alex Gonzalez. Yeah, he had a he was he'd gone five for fifty three in the postseason prior to it. Uh, that home run, and then you know everyone forgets that that funk, you know they in the twelfth. So and then it's two two, and everything's to play for. They win game five, and they think all of a sudden the the Marlins are one away. And then they, he he uh, McKeown decides to, uh, to to pitch Josh Beckett on just three days rest, and then he uh, pitches a complete game victory, and and then the Marlins have just won this rather unlikely World Series, and. They actually win the Witch Series 4-2, and the fact, despite the fact they were outscored 21-17. to Yeah, it, that, that series was just weird at the time because I'd only been watching baseball a couple of years, but I knew that the Yankees had obviously, they'd won, what was it, like four out of the previous seven World Series. And, the Marlins, and the Marlins were, you know, the Marlins were an okay team, but, um, like... The game that really sticks out to me um, was like game four when Alex Gonzalez walked them off because when the Yankees came back in the ninth, I thought, here we go. The Yankees are going to win. 
They're going to win game five, and that's going to be that. Bear in mind, the only two World Series I'd seen before that were seven games, like because it was the the Diamondbacks-Yankees, which was the first World Series I watched, and then the Angels-Giants the year after. But I was expecting, once the Yankees got it back to um, three each in game four, I expected them to go on and win it. Uh, Gonzalez hits the home run, and all of a sudden, things went the other way. Game six, I'll admit, I was pissed as a fart during. I can barely remember it <laughs> at the time. But I just remember, like, sort of like half watching the game and Beckett's still in, just expecting, you know, that sort of Yankees comeback, you know, like expecting like the Marlins to think that they're going to do it. And then something, not, not something like Bartman, but New York, like the way that the Marlins came back in game six of the CS expecting that to happen. But Beckett obviously pitched such a gem that night, a five hit shutout. Um, I can't remember who was the last out, but I remember, uh, Beckett fielded the ball and tagged the runner going down to first and yeah like the Marlins winning the World Series was just bizarre to me uh, at that time because I felt like I felt like they were obviously like not even the best team in the division because they didn't win the division they've never won the division but I also felt that like it was the first time that I realised how sometimes baseball doesn't make any sense and that's okay you know what I mean yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, we we we've spoken about that a lot, and you know, baseball is is never really makes. I guess you know, on a season that where every team plays 162 games, and lasts uh, five and a bit months, um, and then you get um, a long postseason. You know, there are going to be some strange things that happen that maybe don't happen in other sports. It is a li- one of the more unpredictable sort of sports, and you know, and you know, Marlins have been a franchise for. Uh, just over a quarter of a century, and you know they've never won a division, but they've won two World Series. I can't imagine there's a franchise that has never won a division but won a World Series. I mean, I, I'm putting my balls on the line there, but I can't imagine it's happened. Too I don't often. think it is. I don't think there is because even like you know, even like some of the newer ones that have won it. Like I remember, I, I I I couldn't tell you honestly off the top of my head if the Diamondbacks won the division in 2001, but I know I've seen them win the division. You know, and it's just. One of those weird things where, like, now I know obviously the wild card's different now because, like, the wild card's a one game playoff, whereas then it was just the best runner up and the best runner up went straight into the DS. So, you know, it's not as huge and uh, it's not as huge a disadvantage as you'd think back then to be a wild card, card team, but it's still, it's still impressive to. To be the wild card team and then go out and do what they did, and especially like there were so many times in that postseason where it must have felt like it was slipping away, like Game Six of the NLCS, like Game Four of the World Series, and yet that team found a way to stick around and see it out. And I mean, Josh Beckett, Josh Beckett's game in in Game Six in Yankee Stadium. I know everybody, like, in baseball, partly because it's the Red Sox and partly because this was the Marlins, want to wax lyrical, like, about Kurt Schilling's bloody sock. But I feel like Josh Beckett's um, Josh Beckett's performance in Game 6 kind of gets overlooked. And, I mean, if he had pitched that that performance for... I don't know, the Dodgers or the Cubs against the Yankees in Game 6 to win the World Series. It would be in baseball folklore. 
but because it was the Marlins and because they were quite unattractive and because baseball can be like that sometimes, I feel like in some ways it's been largely forgotten. And like I say, I was so drunk that night, it was unreal, but I still remember it, you know? And it's just weird that, like, there is that sort of hierarchy in baseball where it doesn't matter, like, whether it is the World Series or not. Um, if it happens in a Yankees-Red Sox series or it happens in a Dodgers-Red Sox series, it becomes more memorable for that reason. I just feel like, in some ways, like, Josh Beckett's Game 6 performance has to go down as one of the greatest World Series pitching performances of the 21st century. Like, there hasn't been a lot of shutouts in um, the 21st century in the World Series. There certainly haven't been a lot that uh, clinched the World Series that I can think of. And it was just incredible. And I think the only pitching performance, to me, that really jumps out as being comparable is Madison Bumgarner um, against the Royal. Uh, over that whole series, you know, not just, obviously, the, the Game 7 uh, relief appearance, but... Yeah, like Josh Beckett's, to me, Josh Beckett's um, Game 6 performance should should probably go down as one of the best World Series moments of the 21st century. And I think it's a shame that it doesn't really get the recognition it deserves. Yeah, I mean, you were sort of saying, because it is a little reminiscent. There was one that I can think of in the 60s, um, and this is nice uh, company for him to be in, but uh, Sandy Koufax in... Um, he, uh, I think it was against the Twins, um, I think that went to Game 7. And I think, like, Koufax was pitching on, uh, he, I think it was the World Series where he didn't pitch Game 1 because it was on Yom Kippur. And he was, um, and he, um, but he pitched Game 7 on, like, two or three days rest and pitching a, a complete game uh, victory. So it's... It happens, but it, it is. But, but in you know, in those days, pitching was different. The, the the mound was a different size in those days, and it was a very much a pitcher's era. But it, yeah, you're right. I think if Josh Beckett makes that for the for Dodgers, the Cubs, um, you know, well, but let's just basically put it, you know, one of the biggest bigger teams, um, you know, that you know is a big deal, and it would probably be go down as one of the top five, ten pitching performances of all time and probably one of the top three or four in in this century. And it, it's it's a shame really, as you say, that it, it gets sort of not really mentioned. And you know, it's at Yankee Stadium. It doesn't get much more intimidating really. You know, against that against that Yankee side that were, were in the middle of uh, another very dominant era. And it's um I mean McKeown said years later, so I ran with him and he says he had no qualms about it. he said that he knew he was gonna he was going to go the whole game. I think once he got into it, he said, yeah, there was no way I was taking that ball off him because he, he knew that he had his stuff. And he was, um, well, you know, that, you'll, I mean, Marlins, I mean, Marlins fans will remember it and that's what matters. But it, it's just, um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's sad that maybe it doesn't get the attention it deserves because they're not, quote unquote, a huge team. And it's, um, you know, still in like the 10th year of their existence, I think, then, you know, so, it, but, it was a magnificent performance, and you know, you we won't see that many again like that, you know, because the makeup of the game these days is that you know the all sides that reach the World Series will have, you know, you know, really long deep ball pens, specialist guys, great closers, you know, it just doesn't what Josh Beckett did, um, uh, 
and you know what Madlon did. It, you know, it doesn't come along very often. So it's um, I think it deserves to be lauded, and I think um, uh, yeah, I hate to repeat myself, but yeah, it's 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 underrated certainly. I think so. Yeah. So. Uh, those were your uh, Florida Marlins, 97 and 2003, two World Series. Uh, there are fan bases of much bigger clubs on paper than the Marlins who have not seen two World Series in the last quarter century. But, um, yeah, I, like an amazing achievement. I don't really want to talk too much about the blow-up of the 2003 team for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they did post winning records the couple of seasons after, and two, it took longer to blow up. Though they did trade Derek Lee really quickly. The Derek Lee trade in some ways kind of made sense because, uh, like, they had so many guys who could play first and third. Like, they had Mike Lowell. They had um, Miguel Cabrera, who actually played a lot of right field. Uh, but they had the guys there who could, you know, um, they, they had the guys there that could uh, fill in that one. The only the only criticism, again, was um, what they got back, really, uh, which really wasn't a lot. That That's kind of been, at times, the, the, the problem is that the Marlins, when they're not... Um, with, like I think the Marlins got Hesop Choi back. You know, like, there's nothing for Derek Lee. But um, what's weird is that, like, the Marlins at times have really... Despite having the 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 reputation of being a really good rebuilding team, they've they've got a lot of bad trades on the record, and that was one of them. But the, the, the logic of the Derek Lee trade at least made sense to me, so... Uh, I'm not going to criticise it too much, but uh, we'll wrap up just now. Um, next week, uh, I guess we'll I guess we'll tackle the Washington Nationals next week because I think that's going to be a harder one, and I kind of want to save the Braves for last because the Braves, the the '90s Braves, is really interesting to talk about. So we're going to need to figure out exactly what we're going to talk about with the Nationals because I feel like there's a lot of what might have been that we're going to be talking about with the Nationals. But um, yeah, obviously they won the first division title in 2012. So I guess we can kind of talk about that run from 2012 to 2017 where they made the postseason a few times. But uh, we'll figure that out uh, over the next week. Uh, but we'll wrap up just now. So uh, any Marlin fans, I hope you enjoyed that little look back in history. And as much as I'd like to rant and rave about the way the Marlins uh, conduct their business, uh, the fact that they won the two World Series that they did were was really, really impressive. And we have to talk about it. So, uh, Thomas, thanks again. No problem. Thanks, Jerry. And we will talk to you again on Thursday to see what's happened over the last week of NLE Baseball. Take care.